0: Emptiness flowed through my hands And haunting voices cried As I talk the talk of madness I change the words to make the wrong seem right, right.
1: This discussion with Cliff was initially intended to be used for our short-form Flint Fleck shows. But since there is so much material, we'll be doing two whole shows, of which this is part one. Now this part itself is made up of two separate recordings, and when we get to the second part of this episode, I'll offer some more explanation as to what is going on then. But for now, here is GK and Cliff with 50 False Jewish Messiahs. <laughs> You're listening to Like Flip Radio, part of the Revelations Radio Network. Welcome to another episode of What Are You Reading This Week with Cliff Garner. Uh, This is probably going to turn into a few episodes. Now, the book that Cliff is reading currently is 50 Jewish Messiahs the untold life stories of 50 Jewish messiahs since Jesus and how they changed the Jewish Christian and Muslim world. So it's going to be interesting. And this is a book by Jerry Rabo. How are you, Cliff? And can you give us a bit of a brief background of what this book's about? And then we will hit the discussion on one of these messiahs.
2: Sure. It's really about different messiahs of the uh, Jews over the years. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the thing we have to keep in mind is that uh, the Jewish concept of Messiahship is somewhat different from ours. Uh, okay. This is from page two of the Jewish Messiahs. And it's nice, a uh, nice quick definition mm-hmm. of the, the whole idea. It says, while the origins of the Messiah idea can be traced to several early apocryphal writings, the popular Jewish concept of Messiah generally Uh, begins with the biblical verses of several of the prophets, particularly Isaiah and Zechariah. Uh, These Jewish prophets uh, pictured the Messianic era simply as a time of universal peace when the exiled Jews would be returned to their holy land as a sovereign people, an event often called the redemption, return, or restoration. Uh, We hear those words uh, bandied around a lot by Hebrew roots folks also. And they're sticking the church into it. Actually, they're trying to negate the church and in turn it into Israel. That's without saying. Uh, the Jews would then re- reassume their membership or perhaps preeminence among the world's nations. Uh, this idyllic like, uh, messianic era would be ushered in by the appearance of the Messiah, who would be a descendant of King David. These initial expressions do not describe the Messiah as a supernatural miracle worker or even as someone whose special efforts are needed to bring in on the messianic era. The initial Jewish Messiah idea referred simply to the temporal Jewish leader who would reign in the Messiah era arrives. The very word Messiah in Hebrew, Moshiach, meaning uh, anointed, does not imply any miraculous or divine powers, but merely refers to a priest, king, or prophet who undergoes the formal ritual of anointment with oil to enter upon this role. Jewish theology is ultimately shaped by the communal experiences of the Jews. As the diaspora experience became increasingly marked with suffering, despair, and death, Jews needed more, and the Messianic concept was elaborated. To keep a hope alive during these desperate times, the Jews began to emphasize the version of the Messiah myth, predicting that the arrival of the Messianic era would be preceded by the infliction on the world of the terrible birth pangs a term used by Isaiah of course, used by Jesus also, right? That's right. Uh, Under this view, the uh, Messiah would come only after the very lowest point of history, marked by international chaos and destruction, and in particular the great suffering for the Jews. Thus, the worse their current circumstances became, the more reason Jews had for believing that the Messiah would not only come, but would come soon. Because of the seemingly unbridgeable contrast between the miserable reality of the Jews' lives and their sweet dreams of universal peace, it was natural for Jews to believe that it would take a miracle worker to bring on the change. Now, this is you know, showing the mutation of the idea, even before Jesus came, really. In this manner, the Jewish Messiah figure was transformed from an ordinary leader to a man of miracles, from a king who would preside over the new era to a military hero whose divinely invincible powers would win the final battle. And, and right there, you, you can see where the Jewish expectations were starting to uh, change in a way that they would not be fulfilled by Jesus. And that what they were looking for was not what he would be, right? Because they were expecting Jesus to, to take on the Romans. I mean, right. that, that becomes clear from the reading. Yes. And that, uh, that he wasn't going to do that this time around, uh that disappointed them to no end, and that's one of the reasons they rejected him. Right. So, so we have this military uh, background for the whole the whole concept, and it conflicted with Jesus Christ and his coming, and uh, so as a consequence, uh, a lot of the Jews rejected him. And so this is a pretty serious issue. Uh, and back to the reading here, it says, Of course, one difficulty with the requirement that the Messiah must be a divine, miraculous being is what to do when the Messiah was not ultimately successful. And the, uh, the ones that come after Jesus, so you see a lot of this. Uh, what can you say when the miracles were not enough? A lot of practiced Jews developed several answers. First, not everyone agreed that the Messiah would be a miracle worker. Moses Maimonides, uh, from 1135 to 1204, was one of Judaism's greatest philosophers, commentators, and theological authorities of any era. Although he wrote extensively about the Messiah, Maimonides was an intellectual rationalist who strove to Judaic beliefs into harmony with Aristotelian scientific truth. Thus, this concept of the Messiah returned to the original biblical view. The Messiah would be an ordinary but enlightened leader who would reign at the time of the Messianic era. Until the Messianic era arrived, it was obvious to Maimonides that all that purported Messiahs must fail. In some ways, uh, Maimonides was uh, presenting himself as a kind of a picture of the Messiah as well. I, I don't know if you'd ever heard that before. Yeah,
1: no, I I think so. And he's highly respected to this day amongst the Jews and Israel, because I think in uh, one of their earlier banknotes, he features on it prominently.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Mm, He's yeah. one of the greatest people to live, actually. Right. In in, in any era, uh, yeah. In any, any place, uh, the guy was a uh, very, very uh, extensive in his thinking. You know, I mean, it, it, it's really remarkable how complete his philosophy was.
1: Yeah. We, now we we look back at him as a uh, a wise philosopher from our angle, don't we?
2: Yeah. Yeah, we do. And uh, and he was mediating actually between uh, Judaism and Islam and Christianity. Yeah. And, uh, and he, was, uh, he was also one of the foremost uh, people at his time for, uh, presenting this Aristotelian uh, philosophy yeah. in, in a big way. Right. And that, that was the thing. I, you had kind of a, a dynamic uh, going throughout the Middle Ages that was uh, kind of fluctuating between uh, Platonic and Aristotelian philosophy. Mm. And all the, the, the readers will be like, wow, well, we're, we're trying to get rid of all that paganism. It's like, no, you're not. You're actually putting in more with the Kabbalah. Yeah. Uh, so sorry. But uh, that is the way it is. It's uh, very platonic. uh, In fact, it's probably almost uh, pantheistic uh, in Mm. its uh, Mm. permeation of the god essence, right? Yes. We'll come across a lot of this uh, looking at these uh, people here. But My, Maimonides was a was a really important one, and he uh, he he did try to put more of a rationalistic viewpoint onto it. And there's there's a big uh, conflict between Maimonides and the Kabbalistic leaning messianic characters and their followers. And that does go back to uh, a dynamic that, you know, you see throughout the whole Middle Ages between Aristotelian rationalists, and then on the other hand you have the uh, Platonic uh, mysticism, you know, the uh, Neoplatonists.
1: Cliff, he's not one of the 50 that's listed in the book,
2: though, is he? Uh, actually, he is. Uh, he's oh, okay, okay. Uh, all right. we, we will come across him again. Okay, okay. The, the thing that happened right after Christ's crucifixion they don't talk about in here, but I, I was listening to a program uh, that had, had a nice clip from uh, uh, Dr. Brown, and that there was a, a lot of things that happened, and they were documented in the Talmud, that showed that God had moved on from the temple, even before the temple was destroyed. Like the, uh, the ribbon that they would uh, tie onto the sacrifice,
1: right?
2: it wouldn't change color. And so it was showing that God was rejecting their, their, their sacrifice. So the thing is, is that the uh, Temple era was ended before, and the the Jewish uh, establishment knew that. So that that's probably part of why they were preparing with the Talmudic stuff, the one in Babylon and, and all that, that they were preparing for the new change that was going to happen. They weren't sure what form it was going to take, but when the, the Temple was destroyed, it was clear that God had, god had spoken so that in my opinion it, it tends to very strongly uh reaffirm the uh, christian message but at the same time uh there were other opinions you know i mean the uh, the rabbis definitely had their own take on it so, so the first one that comes about is our good old friend bar Kokhba, and he is the first real uh messiah that that they deal with in this book and uh He's an interesting character. They don't really go into a whole lot of detail on him. You know, you, you probably get a lot more from uh, certain history books of the time. Are we going to be
1: talking about him today or?
2: Yeah, said Bar Kokhba. Oh, absolutely. Okay.
1: Now, other people might know him, Cliff, Shimon ben Kosibar. Yeah. Son of a star. Mhm. Uh, second century, we're talking. Right. Uh, second century revolt against Roman rule.
2: Right. After the uh, temple had been ruined, uh, yeah, there was a second revolt, and uh, he, yep. was the, he was the the chosen leader.
1: That's right.
2: Now, now it was Akiva, or Akiba, depending mm-hmm. on how you want to pronounce it, uh, that uh, was the uh, the the head rabbi at the time. Uh, he was the one that actually physically anointed Bar Kokhba. and he really went on, on a limb on that because a lot of people didn't go along with him. And the years are uh, 100 to 135 on Bar Kokhba. I guess that he was really cruel to the Christians. Well of course with the first rebellion and the destruction of the temple, the Christians got out of town long before. And I'm I'm under the understanding that uh that the Jewish establishment never forgave Christians for it. But uh but there was there were other problems besides that. So you really can't put it down to that. I mean you had the the Sanhedrin paying Paul to go out there and kill people until he uh, went on the road to Emmaus. And they they didn't really find anybody to really take his place, but they they did find smaller characters, I guess, who would persecute the church. But Bar Kokhba, he he did strike at the church. He was very hostile to Christians. And uh, he was also, I understand, a very good administrator.
1: Well, yes, because um, uh, as far as I know, they were minting their own coins in his era. Uh, so that shows some sign of uh, administrative control mm-hmm. and, you know, replacing all the Roman ones with their own coins from his era. And um, yeah. I think also some of those coins were the ones that had representations of the temple on them. Yeah. So that shows his connection with the temple, as you say, administrative civil
2: control. But he was also a military leader, too, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he was actually quite good. Uh, they won a series of battles and kicked the Romans out. And uh, which I find kind of interesting. Uh, now, now, to back it up a little bit, uh, he was uh, directly in conflict with uh, Hadrian, who had uh, taken over for Trajan. Right. And, and and one of the things about this that I find kind of interesting is that uh, Trajan didn't care much for the Jews. And he had pushed the, the borders of Rome probably to their greatest extent because, you know, he went up into Romania and uh, took Transylvania and all that. But uh, with Hadrian, Hadrian actually started off uh, with a very positive attitude towards the Jews. And he was even talking about letting them build the uh, temple, or rebuild the temple. Right. And the problem is, is that the more he gave, the more they demanded.
1: And uh, uh,
2: you know, Good old human nature, Cliff. Good old human nature. Uh, <laughs> and so, and he talks about this. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, I, I read that, and it was like, I, I remembered hearing that, But, you know, you don't find that in too many historical sources. A lot of sources don't even discuss what Hadrian was doing before the rebellion occurred. They just, it it sounds like it just comes out of nowhere. Well, it it doesn't. It came because, you know, you had Titus uh, destroy the city, you know, and uh, his father became a Caesar. And then Titus uh, would become Caesar after that, and then the, the third one in the family did after that. Yeah, and so he was the first of the bond. So Domitian. Domitian was uh, Yes, yeah, so the it goes better. Vespasian,
1: Titus, Domitian. So Vespasian, yeah, Vespasian was the father, and right. Titus and Domitian are brothers, yeah.
2: Right, exactly. And the, the, after, after them, you know, you ended up with Trajan. Uh, Trajan uh, came along a little bit. Well, well, not directly, but a little bit later. And, and then you ended up with Hadrian, and Hadrian was uh, Trajan's uh, adopted son. You know, that, that was uh, that was the good emperors, right? And, well, and uh, right. Hadrian, uh, Hadrian's been uh, given a bad rap by the Jews. I mean, yeah, they really didn't like him. But but the thing is, is that Trajan was really hard on him. And so were the previous ones, you know, Domitian and all them. They were all hard on him. So when Hadrian came along and started off being nice, and they, they started demanding more, then, uh, then he was just totally execrated. I mean, he just, he's, he's like one of the worst of all of the emperors. And for good reason, eventually, but, but, but not because of what he did at first. Because when he started to allow them to start rebuilding the temple, they started getting these uh, really heavy messianic uh, fervor and they were, they were looking to overthrow Rome. They thought, they thought for sure that this was going to be the time. You know, they missed it with Jesus. <laughs> and right. so yeah. now, now's, our, now's our chance, right? We're going to really tear up Rome this time. And, uh, and so when, when that fever started up, Hadrian didn't have a whole lot of choice, and he started cracking down on him. And it. And it just went from bad to worse really quickly. It says here, it says uh, that he actually started building the temple. Uh, Hadrian undertook the rebuilding of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem at the location where Titus destroyed the second temple in 70 A.D. It is said that in order to ensure absolute fidelity to the biblical requirements of the construction, Hadrian placed the project under the direction of Onkelos, a uh, renowned biblical translator and commentator and famous convert to Judaism. Uh, I believe he was Egyptian. Uh, it is uh, difficult to even imagine what course of Jewish history might have taken if Hadrian had gone through with his plans to build the third temple for the Jews. Uh, but instead, the emperor stopped the project because of the concerns of his generals and the church. They warned him that if he reestablished the Jews in the temple in Jerusalem, the Jews would become too powerful. In place of the messianic dreams that Adrian, Hadrian's uh, initial plan had stirred up, His reversal sparked bitter resentment of the Jews, and the emperor's new policy unleashed a vicious spiral of reciprocal hostility. And this one's hard to confirm, but they say that he says that Hadrian's daughter was killed and he blamed the Jews. Have you ever heard that?
1: No, that's very new to me. So is this from the book? Yeah, that's what the book says. Mm.
2: And and I've seen little things, but as far as it being reputable citation, it's not. You know, it's like uh, there's this little tidbit, and it could be really, really important to the whole point. It would be quite
1: a major issue
2: if we could prove it. Yeah. yeah, it would be if we could prove it. And and the thing is, is I haven't seen anything that, that actually proves it, and most of the references are back to this book anyway. That item exists apart from this book but I can't get, a, get any citation on it. So that's a little detail I, I'm, I'm hoping that I can come across eventually. And, yeah, if we can prove that one way or the other, that could be really significant. There were some assassinations that occurred in uh, different parts of the empire, and that is a fact. There was Jewish agitation not just in, the, in Israel, but also all through the eastern part of the empire in North Africa, and that was a huge problem. And in fact, uh, when when they finally reacted in a military manner and anointed Bar Kokhba, they actually took a huge chunk away from the emperor at, uh, off the bat. And it, it went all the way from Egypt all the way up into, uh, really up to Mesopotamia.
1: So he did a spectacular job, one could say, but I guess from the Romans' yeah. point of view, they would have been seeing the Jewish people as a as a problem, maybe even as a problem group.
2: Oh yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, think about it. You know, you got you got a whole group of people that are they're scattered all over the place. I mean, uh, there was a huge community in Spain. That's where James had come from, you know, when he came back and got beheaded by uh, uh, Herod and Tipas. When he came back from overseas, he was in Spain, in Then you had a small community up in uh, England. You had a very extensive community all through uh, Asia Minor, right, Turkey. And uh, they were spread really very thick in uh, Syria and all through Palestine or Israel as you want to call it uh, down down into Egypt and North Africa and not to mention Rome itself. You know there there was a huge community in Rome, so you had these people spread all over the empire. They're very insular. Uh, I think the one thing you might be able to compare it to in the U.S. would be uh, the Mexican communities because they're they're everywhere. You know.
1: Right, and obviously we're you know looking at this from a Roman point of view. It's not yeah. what we're yeah. thinking, we're not saying they're a problem or or no, no, minority no, no, groups no. a problem. It, but you've got to see it from the you know the dominant powers point of view. You could say, okay, these people are becoming a problem, are a problem. We have to do something about it.
2: Yeah, and it's 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 a visible community. It, it's right. uh, it's one that's that's not just in one place. It's it's everywhere. And uh, with the Ottomans, uh, they they would probably have seen the Armenians that way. And uh, in fact, I'm sure they did because I, yes. I, I, very I very good have got documents on this. Well, well, actually, it's probably a probably a closer analogy, and the way the Romans reacted is probably more similar to uh, to, to the Ottomans. They went after them, <laughs> they uprooted them, and moved them around, and uh, and that, and that's exactly what they did. And, and, yeah, Bar Kokhba was a pretty good leader. I mean, he, one of the things he was doing was he was enforcing a very strict tithe on all his acquisitions from the different areas.
1: No wonder he had the coins minted.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. One of the things he was doing was that he would acquisition corn from one area and he'd acquisition uh, armaments from another and uh, all this, but he was tithing everything. And uh, one of the things about this is that this is part of the expectations of the Messianic coming is that there is either a very strict interpretation of the law or there is a very antinomian bent that the law is uh, drastically changed and and possibly even uh, deliberately flouted.
1: Right. So you're saying there's no, say, happy middle ground.
2: No, it doesn't seem to be. It seems to be pretty extreme. It's either one or the other. It's a, this is part and parcel of what the uh, rabbis teach, is that uh, that you'll end up with one or the other, basically. Uh, it, it says somewhere here which uh, school that is. There's this really strict one, and then Hillel was the uh, more liberal. And, and Jesus and the Christian movement kind of came out of that kind of thinking. In which uh, a more mild form of the law would be enforced. Oh, here it is. A uh, uh, rabbi Shammai, and uh, Shammai is a uh, really strict, a very stringent school of thought. And so, what you have is a, an extreme uh, rigidity of the law. And of course, because of that, Bar Kokhba was persecuting Christians pretty heavily. Uh, the idea there. Is that Christians by being uh, what they are, heretics for one, but also uh, rather loose in their interpretation of the law. In fact, redefining the law uh, into uh, well, we have the two uh, aspects of the royal law, is What we we consider uh, the law, right? Do unto others as others would have them do unto you. And love uh, the Lord thy God with all their heart and all their mind and all their soul, right? So, so with exactly. with that. Uh, with that interpretation of the law as opposed to wearing tzitzoth and uh, <laughs> you know, having your beard just so and all this kind of thing, that this made the Christians obvious sinners in, in their book because Shammai is a very strict interpretation of all the uh, Mosaic codes. So you know, when, they, when they say, oh, it's the oral law, well, no, it's not the oral law. It's how you're interpreting the law, the written law. And that's really where it goes back to. And like I say, Markov uh, was uh, very strict. He was measuring mint, and uh, he was measuring uh, corn and everything just to the nth degree. So he was uh, quite the administrator. There was also a high degree of fanaticism in his army. They were fighting against tremendous odds, and uh, they were willing to fight against even bigger ones. So there's a, a lot of Valor, but also, you know, people fighting even (laughs) while they're dying and stuff like this. You know, they're just really pumped because they they believe the end of the world's coming. They believe that that God's going to come down and save them. But one of the things that Koshua did uh, was he limited God's role. You know what I'm talking about?
1: Yeah. So was he believing his own propaganda? Was he believing his own, like, he, he was the Messiah, I'm the one?
2: I don't know if it would be that so much as that he was actually shying away from the idea of God doing the work for him. He wanted to do it himself. Right. his thing was, uh, well, here, uh, he would pray, Master of the world, neither help nor embarrass us. Mm. Now, that, uh, you know, there's some really big problems with this, but, you know, I, I can see where he would do that. And, and because, uh, you know, this is this is definitely an anti-Christian thing, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which we want to say that Christ does it all for us, which he does. You know? Right. But in his case, I'm doing it. It's me. So he's telling God, don't stop me. Don't get in my way. Get out of my way.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's
2: you know, so what he's telling God. Yeah. And it's really kind of interesting, that kind of dynamic that he has, even after all the work that Akiva did. And Akiva... Uh, uh, supposedly was one of the great founders of the uh, Zohar. And, and, and a lot of the Zohar uh, goes back and cites Akiva. So your rudimentary uh, mystical schools are starting even now to produce separate Yitzhara, the uh, the Book of Splendor, I guess it's called. And uh, that gets into the Kabbalah. There's no, no way around it. The Kabbalah is starting to really take root at this time, if not before. And uh, with Akiva, he, he's one of the main ones. Uh, also, uh, Yokanan, I think, is another rabbi. By... Now, now uh, you, you were mentioning that uh, Kosiba, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. That was actually his name. Yeah. Was that uh, Kosiba or Kosiba? Yeah. But it was Akiva, he gave him the name Bar Kokhba, which is the son of the star. And uh, this is a messianic term. Right. And that's where that comes from. It comes from Akiva. Of course, nobody ends up with everybody behind them, right? You know, you, you have you have two Jews together, and so you have three opinions or more. <laughs> that's the <a> saying, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the saying. That, that seems to be about right, especially with rabbis. So when when Akiba went for him, uh, he called him the son of the star, and some of the others uh, they uh, actually called him Barkoziba, which means son of lies. <laughs> 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 so, so it, you can see where, where that all went. Yeah. Uh, there is that other opinion there, and a lot of the rabbis didn't buy into it. Mm. And, uh, uh, in fact, the Rabbi Yohanan Ben Porta uh, was recorded in Jerusalem Talmud of saying, Akiva, grass will sooner grow, grow on your chin before the Messiah comes.
0: <laughs> um.
2: It's just a very clever way of saying, you'll be dead before he's here. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, so that's kind of funny. But uh, it, at the same time, it, it does show that uh, it was far from uh, united behind him. And when it started to fail, it, it went fast. He really didn't hold on to very much for very long after really remarkable successes. When it went, it went. Uh, that, that's the thing with Marková. And they give a story here, and it's kind of interesting, and talks about how uh, strict Bar Kokhba was and uh, also how it really kind of rebounded against him. And it came down to he was uh, holding on to one one stronghold, uh, the city of Betar. And it says uh, the stories about the end of that resistance, the end of this uh, first Jewish Messiah. Tell much about Bar Kokhba and how he was viewed. Uh, the basic story is that the Romans finally succeeded only through colossal trickery. A Samaritan entered Betar and contrived to be observed whispering to Rabbi Eleazar, who was Bar Kokhba's uncle and spiritual head of the besieged city. When confronted, the Samaritan falsely confessed that he had been conspiring with Rabbi Eleazar to give up the city to the Romans. At this revelation, the enraged Bar Kokhba is said to have kicked his uncle Eleazar to death. And that was kind of the last straw for a lot of people. Supposedly, uh, is that true? Well, we don't know. It turns out uh, that Mark as he disappears from history, goes into uh, kind of apocryphal stories. He becomes kind of a legend. Barcokpa fails history's first smell test. <laughs> uh, there's uh, he's supposedly able to judge a man by smell alone. <laughs> So, so anyway, that's a, another little apocryphal thing about it.
1: I'm sure there's many.
2: Here's something that plays into uh, a lot of the later legends too. Uh, the tragedy of Betar is said to have occurred on the ninth day of the Hebrew month of Av.
1: I knew you were going to say the ninth I, of Av.
2: Uh, uh, I knew it. Uh, yeah, well, the ninth of Av is when a second temple is destroyed. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, the first temple was destroyed also on the ninth of Av. That's right. And uh, Shabbat Svi would be born on the ninth of Av. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> yeah, and and uh, there, there's more than that. The uh, Ninth of Av will come up a lot over the years, and uh, that's kind of a telling thing.
1: So, what is the outcome after Bar Kokhba? Is there another dispersion?
2: Well, one of the things that happened is that the Jews were uh, uh, enslaved uh, in such great numbers that they glutted the market, and this, of course, uh, spread them all over the place. And uh, right, right. And some of them would uh, stay in slavery forever, you know, all their lives, and uh, just disappear. Others would uh, you know, would retain their identity, and after they uh, you know, went through their time, would probably eventually either be given or uh, be able to purchase their freedom. That was a very frequent thing to happen in uh, the Roman Empire. Uh, some of them would be uh, sold like to the uh, Parthians and end up uh, moving further and further east. When we uh, examine the uh, story about the Lost Tribes, there's some real big problems with the, the, the legend, and, and the people that want to perpetuate it really are, you have to stretch uh, what is known historically. The tribes were never lost, but the uh, diaspora was pretty well spread, okay? And that is a fact. A lot of the uh, diaspora was in uh, Parthia. In fact, they were placed there by the Assyrians. So what you had was you had a Jews that had... Uh, Gone as far as those kingdoms, you know, like around Afghanistan and stuff, back in that time. Uh, they, they were spread out through there, and they were spread uh, all the way up to probably uh, close to Tibet. And they came in contact with the Khazars, of course, and uh, they would uh, convert them or pervert at least the nobility of them, actually.
1: Wind us up on Bakokba so we can keep this as one encapsulated. Oh, okay.
2: Yeah, but, uh, yeah, Yeah, he like I say, he 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 dropped like a stone, uh, which is really kind of a, you know, with his rise, you know, I guess kind of fitting. He was as sudden a failure as he was a success, and that when he died, his movement was, was finished. I mean, there was nothing really left of it. What it did do is it uh, contributed to the diaspora. Uh, the, the Jews were removed from Jerusalem permanently after that. It was, a uh, Ilia Capitolina, I think it was called.
1: Yeah, they renamed it, didn't they? Yeah,
2: they, they totally renamed it, and, uh, they put a temple to Jupiter, I guess, uh, in, uh, Jerusalem, mm. and that the Jews were not allowed to go back.
0: Yeah. Uh,
2: they were, they were under pain of death. Now, that, that, uh, You know, of course, time kind of wore off. I mean, uh, you know, everybody's like, well, uh, uh, Constantine did it, too. It's like, no, no, he didn't. I mean, Mm -hmm. Constantine uh, really wasn't too worried about it because there were more Christians settled in the area by then anyway. Yeah. But uh, one of the things that is kind of remarkable about the diaspora was that we really get told when it happens that there was a huge number of tribes in in Arabia that were uh, Jewish, And they weren't necessarily from the tribe of Judah. In fact, they probably weren't. They were probably from the northern tribes that that were down there. And I understand that uh, Simon and Manasseh and uh, a couple others, that Dan, I think, uh, was also one of them that went south, that these tribes down there were from the northern kingdom, not the southern And you had a kingdom uh, later on that would uh, rise up in Yemen, uh, the Himyarite. Are are you familiar with them? No, no. Uh, That was a huge thing, actually. Uh, You you really didn't see so much of it in Roman writing, but it was kept track of by the Ethiopians.
1: Ah, interesting. But I I knew there had to be some down there because eventually when Muhammad comes on the scene, he's amongst the Jews. Exactly.
0: Hmm. And
2: those were down there. And periodically, there's, uh, like, legends of somebody going, traveling, and trying to find the uh, lost tribes. Hmm. And this runs through uh, as, a, as a kind of a, a counterstream, you know, with the, uh, with the messianic expectations.
0: Right. And,
2: and we're, we're hearing a lot of people talking about that again, but like I say, it's invalid. The, the number of people that possibly were, were lost is actually pretty small. Right. Uh, when it's all told, I think it's something like 27,000 were removed by the Assyrians.
0: Right.
2: So that's less than a fifth of the population of the north. Yeah. And so so what happened is that, that basically they didn't move for a while, and uh, it, w- it was probably at this point in which they actually moved. That's a pretty good case for that.
1: Oh, so yeah. you're saying post-Bakokba?
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. yeah. Right. So, well, he, he brought them all together. Right. And they were kind of spread out all through Syria and stuff. Yep, yep. Uh, and, and during Jesus' time, I mean, that's part of the reason they went up to uh, Tyre and all that, was mm, uh, mm. talking to the Jewish people up there. Yeah. And by Jewish, I'm I'm talking about children of Israel. Yeah. Well, look at Paul. I mean, he, he's from Tarsus, and yeah. he's a Benthai. You know, yeah. well, was he sent out in the diaspora? Well, yeah. Oh, no. Uh, his father his father was there. I mean, so he'd been there for a couple of generations. But that doesn't mean they were there much longer than that. Mm. It's kind of interesting to start looking at the history of it because. It is. You know, they've got all these people who are saying, well,
3: they're, they're, they're lost.
2: <laughs> they, they had to they had to go on north and become Scythians. <laughs> like, no, they don't. Yeah. Why would they do that? Besides, the Scythians, well, they came down into Israel. You know, Sophopolis, uh was named after them. And you had the Sumerians that went into Turkey. You know, I mean, why would they go from a nice, comfortable niche, you know, right there, right on the other side of the Tigris River, go up into the Ukraine, basically, and then come back down? What on earth? Yeah. And, and, and not only that, we're not even talking about the linguistics, you know, with all this babble about the lost tribes. I mean, it just gets ridiculous. Yeah, But we do see certain movements and certain patterns of people, and uh, and, and, I, and and like I say, uh, this is uh, right at about the point where, you know, in order to get away from the Romans, a lot of them went south.
1: Yeah, no, so, look, it makes complete sense, because as I say, eventually they're down there in Muhammad's time, so it makes sense oh, yeah. to me.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that was the best place to go to get away. Yeah. rather than stay within the empire or go into Parthia and give them the Romans an excuse to go after them. That's right. So they, they went south, they went into Arabia, where they'd lose them in the desert. And, and no, that, the Arabs were close relatives. I mean, the, the languages well, they, between Well, them, they were. Oh, yeah. Uh, they, well, they still are. They, you know, they've argued uh, that Ugarit and uh, Hebrew and uh, uh, Canaanite, mm-hmm. which also means Phoenician, were all uh, northwestern Semitic. Yes, and the difference between those languages is almost nil. Yeah, you know, you, you really have to go to uh, the Babylonian language and find any significant di- differences, and and it, really where it's only significant is because uh, the influence of Sumerian uh, and the fact that uh, that they were using the writing su- system they were using. See, one of the things that happens with language is if you have a an educated elite who dictates the uh, rules to language. It tends to become systematized, you know, to where uh, it will reinforce certain uh, tendencies within the language. Because they were using a foreign uh, script, it, it would naturally tend towards a, a certain type of abstraction that would enter into the, inner, the language yeah. and that there would be a lot of borrowing from the Sumerians and also there would be a, a certain amount of uh, rigidity with grammar. So what what probably happened is is that the, as the Aramaic uh, tribes started moving further into Babylon, that really that was a living language, whereas the the Babylonian Akkadian language was more of an official language that they would use in the court and with the religion. And in fact, that's that's exactly what the uh, the historical record tends to show is that uh, the Aramaic language. Displaced, very quickly displaced Akkadian because it was a living tongue. Yeah. The was, It was a relic uh, yeah. from another time and uh, and it was used in in high society, but it wasn't used by daily people. And so when, when that happened, and, and not to mention the diaspora, you know, when, when they exiled the best the, the and brightest to Babylon, what language did they come back speaking?
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. You know, they were speaking Aramaic. Aramaic.
1: Uh-huh. All righty, so that's the first of the 50 messiahs. I'm not going to hit all 50. I'm, I'm going
2: <laughs> kind to of a quick overview of a lot of these guys.
1: I, I was going to say, we're not going to do all 50, but we might look at uh, one or two others as we go along. But I, I yeah. find uh, Bar Kokhba is the best one to kick off with because he is officially the first. Is that right?
2: Yeah, he really is. And mm. he's an interesting guy to start with. Yes. And, uh, but Maimonides and uh the 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 way he affects the whole thing uh for a couple hundred years mm-hmm. uh is is kind of kind of where it goes uh from there and after him what you end up with is some really strange characters here and there that kind of pockmark market but uh mostly it's uh the Kabbalah takes over
1: right so we're going to hit a couple of the major ones and maybe if you find.
2: That yeah. helps define find Shabtad Right, right, yes. It, it really does. He is the product of the Lurianic uh, Kabbalah.
1: So we will eventually get to Zvi, won't we? But we are looking at another 1,500 years. <laughs>
2: probably pretty soon, probably pretty quickly, actually.
1: All right, we'll leave it there for this week, Cliff. Uh, that was interesting, and I look forward to more of the 50 false Jewish messiahs. In this next part, Cliff and I discuss Herod and the Hasmoneans and the Essenes with regard to messiahship. Cliff refers to a second book he has been reading on the same topic, so just be aware that we will be discussing the topic with reference to two different books and our own general knowledge. Also, this recording was made at a different point to that which you have just listened to. And I have to say it is the most difficult time I have had recording over Skype We spent four or five hours to record this. We tried just recording over Skype. I tried calling Cliff's landline and I tried calling his mobile, but we just couldn't get the quality any better than what you're about to hear. Ironically, after we finished recording, and that is probably about four hours later, uh, after a long struggle, the quality came back and Cliff was as clear as can be expected. But by then, we were, to be honest, we were worn out. Now, that being said, please try and stick with us as I think you will find this segment interesting. And as usual, when you listen to Cliff, you will find some surprises along the way and maybe something you did not formally know. Um, So let's get back to Cliff and the false Jewish messiahs.
3: Huh? Oh, that you back? Okay. It says you're in California. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, don't it, but I, I, ju- I just noticed that. I look I at the top, it says uh, 661, area you code, right? Uh, 748, <laughs> it says California.
1: Okay, well, don't tell anybody, but I secretly have always lived in Los Angeles.
3: <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, uh, of course, we'll probably probably closest uh, uh, place for it to come. In. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, are in California. Yeah. Oh, goodness. I was going to mention, of uh, course, you know, going back a little bit to uh, you know, if you double back and then you kind of really see kind of a big pattern there uh, with, uh, with the Messianic expectations, but also how they can also turn against them. Right. Uh, because uh, eventually, uh, a- actually, that's really what the, the seems uh, represented was a was a very anti-Maccabean uh, uh, kind of thing. Yes. But not only that, the, uh, the uh, legacy that the Maccabees had uh, was was also uh, one that was being used, uh, you know, by a, uh, by a lot of people. Uh, Egypt is manipulating it, uh, uh, and the, the Greeks did too, but. Uh, in the long run, the big winner out of that was actually uh, Herod. Yes. Because he married
1: into the family. Yes. Now, um, just um, a bit of background, Cliff. He 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 married. Um, he had a number of wives. It was about uh, eight yeah. or nine, wasn't it? And and one of them was yeah. a uh, Mac- Maccabean. Uh, she was of the like the royal line, wasn't she, Mariam or something? Yeah. Yeah, so um, just setting the stage here, um, we're still talking about our 50 messiahs here. So Cliff's talking about the Maccabean era. Um, they threw off the um, the Greek yoke and uh, took back Jerusalem for themselves. So they're either called the Hasmoneans or the Maccabees. <clears throat> and the name comes from um, uh, Judas Maccabee and uh, it, it means the hammer. And so the... Uh, the Hasmoneans had control of Jerusalem and, and Judea for a while. And um, as Cliff's just said, um, Herod married into uh, that family. Now, Herod had a number of wives and he had many, many children. Uh, but um, he he was very, very uh, uh, a political uh, manipulator. And he knew what he was doing by marrying into that family uh, so he married her, but he eventually had her killed. He had her murdered, as he had many of his yeah. wives and children murdered. But anyway, Cliff's back. Cliff, give us the connection. So um, you take over.
3: Well, well he, the, the, uh, the, the family, after they had uh, it, it pretty much uh, became a, a, uh, a, a dynasty by, by conquest, they, they held both the kingship and the uh, high priestship. Yes. And and by having both of those uh, pretty much bound up into one, uh, one office, that uh, that they had a considerable amount of power. And, yeah. and the uh, male kind of died out. And the last one was uh, Miriam, and that was the one he married. Uh, she was beautiful. Uh, yeah. She was known for her beauty. And that uh, Herod... Uh, kind of had to have her, and he was really ambitious, and, uh, and so when he, he married her, he put himself in as king. She was, his, uh, she was supposedly the reigning queen, but uh, he took the reign away from her, and he ended up becoming the, uh, the reknit. So, so she, uh, she played a lot of uh, double games with him, uh, uh, both uh, <laughs> romantically and uh, uh, also with uh, politics as well. And so he had her not. Uh, he, he murdered her in prison, but she was love of his life. Uh, there's no doubt about that. His, his luck was that he was uh, he was really good friends with uh, with uh, Augustine. Yes, and, and that's uh, that's where he uh, managed to uh, to have the access to the uh, kingship. It, one of the things a lot of people aren't aware of is that, uh, that the Maccabees and, and even David, uh, David and uh, Solomon, uh, when they when they were, uh, you know, they were there and they they conquered all the the territory. Uh, they converted a lot of the peoples uh, in the region in, into uh, into Judaism, right. and uh, so a lot of Edomites that were inside the border and things they were made into. Uh, uh, Jews. And so, <laughs> uh, you know, and people talk about, well, the Unimites, well, you know, they're all bad. Well, not necessarily. I, I, you know, what, what you have is some of them became proper Jews and some of them didn't. You know, some of them resented it. And uh, when the exile came, they reverted back to form and they were uh, against the Jews rebuilding the temple, Okay. Right, and then when the Maccabees uh, came to power, uh, and it's a really interesting story with them, you know, that you that, uh, had a, a Ptolemy that was trying to uh, to destroy Judaism, and he sacrificed pig on the Holy of Holies and things like this, uh, and was trying to uh, he he tried to forbid uh, the readings of the Torah and things like this, that, and that. Uh, who uh, refused the sacrifice, and uh, and he started the rebellion, and, and it, it was Judah that uh, became the, the hammer himself. That's right. Uh, but, but when they uh, when they uh, conquered the area again, and and, and actually created a uh, pretty 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 fair sized uh, uh, Jewish state, that uh, he again, uh, uh the uh, The Edomites and the Moabites and other people in the region who had actually gone further inward uh, into uh, the borders of what we would now call uh, Israel that he forced them also to uh, again uh, become Jewish and uh, a lot of them accepted it Uh, they were probably leaning towards a uh, more of a monotheistic kind of belief anyway Uh, that was the trend um of the time, uh, although the, the Greeks uh, had the, their polytheism, uh, the, the, the people of the, of the Levant uh, were, were getting away from a, uh, the, um, the type of, uh, of paganism that was uh, rampant before, you know with uh, you know with the starte and all those. those. those gods and goddesses were, were kind of passe. Yeah, but well, was that could be, you had an established uh, established line, and, and and what they did was, was by by virtue of their uh, fighting back, is that they became uh, uh, appointed as a type of messiah. Okay, okay. And, and they were they, they were seen in that way, and by their success, uh, it, it, it snowballed, of course, and. Uh, and, and uh, established uh, a whole line and a dynasty.
0: Yes.
3: So, see, that, that this, is, this is kind of a parallel to uh, the Davidic line and the messianic establishment of David, uh, although, you know, we do have God's uh, imprint on, on David in ways that we don't see with the uh, Maccabees. But, but we can actually see a really kind of interesting parallel in the way that the Messiahship has worked since. And especially with the uh, Jewish uh, uh, Jewish views of it, they were kind of blessed because they succeeded. Okay. Yes. When they established themselves, because they established themselves for generations. Uh, good grief! They had they had that kingdom for what a hundred years. Right. Yep. yep. Like before the uh, before the uh, uh, the Romans moved in. That's right. So. So by the time uh, by the time the, the, the male part of the line had, had uh, dried up, uh, and then you had uh, Herod move in and bury the girl, uh, Marion, uh That what you had was was a a line that uh, had, had uh, kind of crystallized into something else, and and, and by the time that uh, that they were coming towards the end of the. Uh, of the uh, dynasty, you had things like Cumanon uh, uh, and uh, the the uh, Essenes, who were uh, actually thinking uh, themselves as uh, uh, in opposition to them, and they were they were waiting for a Messiah to deliver them from the Maccabees. So, so you had it uh, kind of go full circle with that, right? That that. Uh, that uh, they went from being the the ones where the hopes were placed upon them to being the ones that they were hoping to get rid of by the agency that God would choose. So, so that was a, a pretty key point in uh, in, in what this other book. There's a second book here. I don't know if a uh the name, the False Messiah. The, by a fellow named Jack gratter and. Uh, but he, he does a nice uh, long view of, of historical and uh, the science that arrives in Europe and uh, uh, North Africa and Asia, and uh, and it's kind of a, a parallel to the uh, this uh, Jerry Raybo book. It, it, it has a uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the same people arrived in it that in the other.
1: Can you can you give me that and, author's uh, name again, Cliff, please?
3: Um, yeah, the well Jerry Raybo's the fifty Jewish Messiahs uh yeah. that's his copyright.
1: No, but what's and, the other one? The, the other book. Two thousand two.
3: The other one is uh, called uh, The False Messiahs and, and it's 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 also about Christians as well and uh and then even goes into some uh, political ones so that some you know more in our time. His name is uh Jack, this uh, Jack Right, Jack. brown
1: Okay,
3: and, uh, and he apparently is British. And he copyrighted this in uh, 1976 in New York, uh, but it was 75 in Britain. All was starting to uh, become uh, recognized by a lot of Christians too, you know. so you had you uh, had that influence on Christendom, and uh, which uh, I-, I don't think was all bad uh because uh, the the original Kabbalah was based on the bible and uh and and i think that uh that uh, they might have gone a little bit far with it but at the same time it opened up a lot of uh, a lot of symbol symbolism and a lot of uh, uh understanding of uh of uh sacred geometry and things like this i think that uh, that that you know i that we we can we can contemplate you know in a, in a certain way um, the numeric uh, values of uh, of for instance the the, the, Ark of the covenant right uh, that the, the, these numbers do have a, a certain significance and 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 and, the, and it's kind of contemplated but uh, at the same time I, I don't really think it's unhealthy you know because we're, we're focusing on things of like God Um it, it, it's it's the, the other developments that, that came because uh, that became a tool for uh, the burning Jews and the Jews reacted against that uh, that uh, I, I think uh, really uh, drew it into the more probably uh, occultic areas uh, and, and even even though i, I i'm more approving of the original uh, Kabbalah and uh, what they were doing with that. That isn't to say I approve all, of all of it. I, I don't. Yeah. Uh, I, I I think that, that there's a tendency for people to take things like this and use it too much. Uh, right, right. And, and uh, it becomes kind of an end in itself. And and there are elements in the Kabbalah that are, are very. Uh, but there's no other way to call it. I mean, it's really purely a call. It. I mean, uh, and and even when it's uh, speculated and uh, maybe even symbolic in ways that uh, maybe ought to be more symbolized than real.
1: Back to the uh, Hasmonians, um, the Maccabees. Yeah. Can to, I- Yeah. Can I, can I sum up what I think you were saying back there? And you, you tell me if I've got this right. Uh, but the Hasmoneans were seen as um, somehow messianic because they came, uh, they bought the uh, uh, land back under Jewish control. Uh, they cleansed the temple and reinstated the sacrifices. Yet the Essenes who... Um, uh, a border either side of 0 uh, AD, um, they Me? they seen themselves as bringing forth or looking forward to some sort of a messiah to free themselves from the Hasmoneans. Is that kind of what you were saying? Yeah. Yes, and, so, exactly. and, and it folds back onto itself? That's that oh. And it folds back onto itself. It goes round and round.
3: Yeah, oh, yeah. This is kind of it's gone full circle. Yeah, that's exactly what I said. Okay. Uh, the, the 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 uh, Macanese, uh and, and they were also called the Half too, I not they? Yeah, I was
1: mixing uh, that up. Uh, yeah, they, that's right. Yeah, and, and uh,
3: yeah, they, they, that's exactly it. They 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 rose up uh, under under a set of circumstances that the you know the, the extreme needs of the people. Mm. Uh, met with, uh, with a very uh, uh, bleak uh, future. Um, and uh, they, they rose to the occasion. Yes. Uh, put them in a position to where they were considered uh, anointed. <laughs> and and uh, like I say, uh, I think in their case, they anointed themselves. In most cases, after Bar Cospa, there wasn't anybody pouring any oil directly but there, but there was kind of a more of a symbolic meaning in, in this anointment. The Essenes represented a faction of the people that turned against them.
1: Yes, that's right. So, uh, no, I thought that was a good point. And is that, that's what's brought out in that book, isn't it? The the Brattus
3: book. Yeah, yeah, it sure is. And, uh,
1: Before we move on, can I just point out that um, the king that the Hasmoneans or Maccabees defeated um, was Antiochus IV Epiphanes from the Seleucid Empire or Seleucid huh? Empire?
0: Yeah,
3: and, I I and he
1: called himself basically God Manifest. What? Right. So, so it's funny that we're talking about messiahs here, and um, uh, we have the Hasmoneans throwing a, overthrowing a guy who called himself Epiphanes, God Manifest. Alrighty, well that's the end of part one of the 50 false Jewish messiahs. I do apologise for the quality of that last piece, and I don't think we'll record like that again, so rest assured when we come back for part two, the audio quality will be much better than that. Thanks for listening, and if you have any comments or questions, just contact us at mail at likeflintradio.com And don't forget you can find us on the web at www.likeflintradio.com I'm your host GK, and until next time, God bless and hooroo.
0: With the closing of a doorway, estrangement of me to the truth inside.